My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the table, and it's lovely uh, to be here with you. And um, because the proclamation of the word is uh, an act that we do together, I greet you. The Lord be with you. And uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we proclaim good news today. Uh, friends, uh, Matt already mentioned this, but um, and please don't tell the liturgy police, uh, but today is not Epiphany. Uh, we're celebrating the Feast of Epiphany a day early, so I know that scandalizes some of you. I hope you'll get over it. Uh, <laughs> Epiphany uh, is on January 6th every year, and that's tomorrow. Um, and we tend not to notice it because it falls on a weekday most of the time, but its themes are really important and profound and deep and illuminating. And so we're celebrating today the Feast of Epiphany a day early uh, since we're all here. Uh, and then starting uh, tomorrow, uh, today officially, uh, tomorrow officially, today uh, celebrating this, but um, we start the season of Epiphany, which officially goes, uh, it depends on how you count it, but some people go all the way to uh, the beginning of Lent. And others say that Epiphany ends uh, at the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord in the Temple, uh, which falls on a Sunday this year as well, and so we're going to uh, celebrate that together. So I'm excited about that. It's also called Candlemas, when you bless all the candles. So uh, lots of feasting, lots of good stuff happening uh, in our midst, friends. Uh, the word Epiphany uh, essentially just come, it just means a revelation. It's an aha moment. It's a, it's a moment where something essential uh, the, nature, the essential nature of something comes to light. It's, it's been long hidden, and now it's revealed for what it truly is. Uh, and traditionally, the story we just read in the Gospel of Matthew of the Magi coming from the east to worship Jesus, it's associated with Epiphany because Christ is revealed not just to be the Messiah of the Jewish people, but to be the Savior of the whole world, the King of all peoples. Um, this is a gospel then for the whole world. And so Epiphany is all about the revelation of God's nature and purpose in the coming of Christ uh, I like to think about it as the consequences of Christmas, the implications of the Incarnation. So we're going to be celebrating that over the next few weeks. Um, I'm going to say more about this later, but uh, at the back there's chalk. And uh, this is part of how we're going to respond uh, to, to this uh, epiphany. That chalk has been blessed, and there's a chalk blessing liturgy that you guys can do in your homes uh, tomorrow uh, on the Feast of Epiphany. Uh, to just declare, we'll talk more about it later, but I just want to mention it to you so that you know it's back there. One of these liturgies and also uh, the chalk that you can take. Just to declare God's blessing, God's light uh, over our homes uh, in this Epiphany season. Uh, and also, uh, it's also traditional, if you would like, uh, to have Matt or I come to your home and we do a house blessing. We just pray through the house, um, throw water everywhere. It's a lot of fun for the kids. Um, so not too much, though. You won't have any water damage. Uh, but if you, if you would like a uh, house blessing this epiphany, uh, do let Matt or I know. And we'll schedule something, a uh, time to come out. You can invite family and friends. It's a lot of fun. So anyway, lots of cool stuff happening in epiphany. During this cycle of light, Advent, Epif uh, Christmas, and now epiphany, we've been preaching from the book of Isaiah. And uh, today's message, uh, passage from Isaiah, is a beautiful, encouraging oracle of salvation given to a despairing people. Arise Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Church, today we proclaim this good news, that in the incarnation our light has come. In Christ the glory of the Lord has risen upon us, chasing away the darkness of shame and despair, reconciling us to God and each other, members of one body, sharing together in God's promise, 
to restore all things. Church, I commission you to arise and shine this epiphany. For the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And the light is stronger than the darkness. Amen? Uh, as I was thinking about uh, how to preach this sermon, uh, meditating on this passage, this story uh, kept coming to mind uh, from Harry Potter. Um, anybody familiar? Carla? Okay. Uh, so uh, right at the beginning of the Harry Potter stories, um, Harry has an epiphany, if you will. Uh, he realizes that he is a wizard. Uh, he didn't realize this before, that his parents were wizards, and he learns that he has this identity and vocation that's been hidden from him until now. And uh, he has this epiphany about the truest thing about him is something that he hadn't known until this moment. Uh, and this is the story of that moment. Harry, if you don't know the story, he's an orphan. His parents uh, died when he was young, and now he lives with his aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon and their son Dudley. These are the Dursleys. They are not good people. Uh, they are not very nice people, and they've actively sought to keep Harry's identity secret from him. They don't like wizards. They don't like all that business about wizards. And so they try to keep this identity secret, and they're hoping it'll just go away. Harry uh, is mistreated by the Dursleys, and he lives in a cupboard under the stairs. He's treated very badly by them. So one summer, when Harry is approaching his 11th birthday, a curious letter arrives for Harry. Harry never gets mail. And he, Harry tries to open it, but Uncle Vernon quickly snatches it and says, this is not right. No, nobody should be mailing you. And he grabs it from him, and before he can read it, so he doesn't, Harry doesn't know what it says, but uh, Uncle Vernon reads it, and he realizes what it is. It's an invitation. It's an acceptance letter, essentially, an invitation to join Hogwarts, which is a wizarding school where Harry is going to learn how to grow into his identity and his vocation. And so uh, he becomes very, because he's been trying to hide this from Harry, he becomes very agitated. He realizes this is not going to go away. And so I'm, uh, he becomes fearful, paranoid, and he burns the letter. But the next day, more letters arrive. Uh, and the next day after that, twice as many arrive. And uh, it becomes fairly ridiculous uh, after that, where they, they start kind of like flying in through the mail slot on the door, and they swoop down the chimney after Uncle Vernon nails that shut. And they're just, they're, you know, uh, banging up against the window panes, and, and these letters are trying to reach Harry, and there's more and more and more of them. And Uncle Vernon and the Dursleys in general are trying to prevent this more and more and more. So Uncle Vernon finally realizes these letters aren't going to stop. So he tells everyone, I know what I'll do. Everybody pack your things, get in the car, we're driving. Where? I don't know. We're driving away. And so they drive and drive and drive and drive. He's trying to get away from, um, he's trying to prevent Harry from realizing who he is and going to this school. And so he drives and drives. He finds an old musty hotel. And the next morning, the owner of the hotel finds them. And he holds up a letter. And he says, is one of you Mr. H. Potter? I've got about 100 of these waiting at the desk. And Uncle Vernon freaks out and says, we're leaving. And finally, uh, on the eve of his 11th birthday, uh, Harry's 11th birthday, Uncle Vernon thinks he's found the perfect way to avoid these letters and avoid this whole nonsense about wizards and Harry. He finds a place where the school will never be able to find Harry and his identity will never be revealed. He rents out an old shack on a rock in the middle of the sea. And it, I, don't know, I don't know if these are on VRBO or like where you can find these. But uh, this is not a nice place. But they, they're rowing out. As a storm starts as soon as they're rowing out to this shack. But Uncle Vernon thinks this is the perfect solution where uh, they'll never be able to reach us out here. And so they're wet and cold and miserable, and they finally arrive, and Uncle Vernon is in very good spirits because he assumes that no one will be able to get a letter to Harry out here. As night falls, the storm rages outside, and Harry realizes it's only a few minutes until his 11th birthday. 
And he counts down the seconds to his 11th birthday, midnight on his 11th birthday. And at the stroke of midnight, a loud boom slams on the door. Someone's knocking to come in. A second boom sounds and then a smash as the door is hit so hard and swings with such force that its hinges are, are left uh, all akimbo. And it goes, sorry, that, I don't know why that word popped into my head. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I know something like that. Uh, and so the door just slams onto the ground and in the doorway is this huge man. And he introduces himself, he comes in, it's Rubius Hagrid. Uh, he's the keeper of the keys and the game master at, at Hogwarts, which is this wizarding school where Harry is meant to go. He gives Harry a birthday cake, and it appears that he's come to take Harry away. But the only problem is Harry doesn't know anything about what's going on because he doesn't know any of this stuff. So Hagrid learns that the Dursleys haven't told him anything, and in fact, they've tried to keep it a secret. They've actively tried to thwart Harry from learning this truth about his identity and his vocation. Hagrid is quite upset with the Dursleys, and then he says to Harry... You don't know what you are. You're a wizard, Harry. That's kind of half an accent. I feel, I feel a little sheepish trying to do Hagrid's accent. <laughs> You're a wizard, Harry. And he hands him his acceptance letter to Hogwarts, and Harry begins this whole new life as a result of this epiphany that chased him down, this inevitable thing that was going to happen. The story gives, gives this sense that this is inevitable. All the letters, everything that's happening for Harry, despite the Dursleys' best attempts at hiding this, at obscuring this fact about Harry's identity and his vocation, the story says this is inevitable. Harry's going to learn, and Harry's going to go into, he's going to learn who he is. So despite the Dursleys' best attempts at keeping him, his identity as orphan, as outsider, the story paints this picture of inevitability. Harry's going to learn the deeper truth of his identity. In the end, the Dursleys are no match for Harry's true identity coming to light. I think I've been thinking about this story uh, because I'm struck by the same sense of inevitability and finality in the prophetic declaration that we have from Isaiah here. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, even in the midst of some Dursleys that Israel was encountering. You tracking with me? All right. Dursley's is going to be a metaphor in this sermon. Okay. Good. All right. So uh, this section of Isaiah is written to people who have returned to Jerusalem after a lengthy exile in Babylon that challenged their faith uh, in the Lord. Cyrus of Persia, he's defeated the Babylonians, and he's allowed these Jewish exiles to go back to the land and even funded the rebuilding of their temple. And so there's a, there's a great deal at first of, of hope. They're like, we're back in the land. This is incredible. Uh, God has come to save us. But they encounter so many issues and so many problems when they're back in the land uh, that they have another crisis of faith. Uh, their task has not been easy. They've experienced opposition from local people. The temple rebuilding project has been halted uh, because of this. Uh, they have to send some letters back to another king and ask permission to keep going. Uh, there's this spiritual discouragement along with poverty and famine and the shame of being second-class citizens in their own land has produced a new crisis of faith for Israel. Yes, we've come back to our homeland, but we encounter opposition at every turn. Perhaps God is powerless to fulfill his promises to us. Perhaps God isn't faithful. Maybe he's not going to keep his promises. Maybe God's just given up on us. Maybe he's abandoned us. Maybe that's why all of these bad things are happening. And into this situation, Isaiah prophesies here in chapter 60, this joyful word of hope to a discouraged people, proclaiming this reality that runs deeper than all of the circumstances that are very real for them. 
But he proclaims a deeper reality, a more fundamental reality about Israel that, that runs deeper than the shame and the failure and the pain and the sin, that runs deeper than the Dursleys that are trying to keep Israel from rising and shining in embracing her true identity and her true calling. The light of the glory of the Lord, his presence with us, that's the deeper reality. That's the more fundamental truth. His presence with us, his goodness toward us, and it's stronger than the darkness that's seeking to obscure and hide this from us. Friends, in the incarnation, our light has come. In Christ, the glory of the Lord has risen upon us, chasing away the darkness of shame and despair, reconciling us to God and each other, members of one body, sharing together in God's promises to restore all things. Church, rise and shine this epiphany, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I just invite you to think about what, what are your Dursleys today? <laughs> what threatens this vision for you? What threatens to obscure the light of Christ in your life today? What circumstance or relationship seems to loom larger than God's glory in your life right now? What darkness seems stronger than light? And it's into the midst of these kinds of Dursleys that Isaiah prophesies. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So no more walking around hunched over in discouragement and despair. Arise, straighten up. Expect something from God. And shine, reflect the light of God's glory that shines upon you now, even in the midst of your Dursleys. The glory of the God shines upon us and shines upon them, even in the midst of trials and frustrations. His beauty and goodness and presence are with them. And so they shine with the radiance of his light. And the rest of the passage goes on to say that the result of this is that the nations, the Gentiles, they'll come to your light, as well as the rest of the exiles who've been scattered, that the light that shines on you will attract both the, both the scattered exiles of Israel and the nations. Everyone's coming. <laughs> The abundance of the nations will come to you and your heart will thrill and rejoice at what God has done. And this is not just mere triumphalism. This is an affirmation of Israel's identity and her vocation to mediate God's presence to the world. God says, hey, in the midst of your discouragement, I've not changed my mind about you. I've not changed my mind about you. It's not just that Israel's fortunes are going to be reversed and Israel's going to be great, uh, but God is still planning to bless the whole world through Israel. Israel has a vocation to shine the light of God into the whole world. And this light is attractive. It's not coercive. The kingdom of God never coerces. This light is attractive, and the nations bring their abundance gladly into the city because they realize that their flourishing is bound up with the flourishing of this city where God himself lives, the king of the whole world. So Jews and Gentiles together, this is part of what we read in Ephesians. I wish I could preach on every one of these passages. But uh, this is part of what we read in Ephesians, that Jews and Gentiles together, this prophesies that they're going to all inherit the promises of God together to restore all things. And the glory of God shines on all because everyone recognizes the beauty and truth and the light of those it has illuminated. And as the church, we read this in the light of the incarnation and we proclaim good news that our light has come. In Christ, the glory of the Lord has risen upon us, chasing away the darkness of shame and despair, reconciling us to God and each other, members of one body, sharing together in God's promise to restore all things. Church, arise and shine this epiphany, for the light is stronger than the darkness. Amen? 
So we need to respond to this good news. Amen? Um, so one of the ways that I want to invite you to respond is by taking this uh, page, this liturgy, taking some chalk from the back, and taking this home, and tomorrow, or tonight, you could do it. You could do it a day early since we're doing Epiphany a day early. But uh, on or around the Feast of Epiphany, there's a blessing where you, you write with chalk on your home, and the, the instructions are all there, uh, and you declare a blessing over your home for the new year. And there's a liturgy there where anybody can, can read this, and you write with chalk uh, on your home. And the, the, the prayer that you end with is this. Visit, O blessed Lord, this home with the gladness of your presence. Bless all who live or visit here with the gift of your love. And grant that we may manifest your love to each other and to all whose lives we touch. May we grow in grace and in the knowledge and love of you. Guide, comfort, and strengthen us in peace, O Jesus Christ, now and forever. So I invite you to respond by, by doing that. Gather friends, gather your family together, and participate in this act of blessing, this act of arising and shining, responding to the fact that God's glory has risen upon you and that you are called. Your identity is that you are the church, the body of Christ, members of one another, reconciled to each other and reconciling all things to God and to yourselves. And so in light of this calling, in light of this vocation, proclaim this blessing over your home, that it would be a place where the light of Christ can shine. Amen? So I invite you to do that. Uh, how else can we respond to this good news? Um, I'm realizing that the implicit, the implicit commission that I wake up with every morning is not arise, shine, for your light has come. Anybody relate to this? Where you wake up this morning, I did not wake up this morning and think, I'm arising and shining for I'm confident that my light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon me. You know, the bird starts singing, and bluebirds on my shoulder. No, uh, I'm realizing this, my, my commission, my implicit commission, I don't know what you guys wake up with, but my implicit commission when I wake up, it sounds more like this. Get up! Things are bad out there and it's up to you to do something about it. That's my commission. That's what I wake up with in the morning. Um, maybe you've got something different, but that's mine. There are problems to solve. There are things to be done, and you better take the responsibility and do it. Make a difference. Make an impact. Have an effect. So because that's my implicit invitation, I think this epiphany I'm sensing is invitation from God to rest in the deeper reality. Yes, I have responsibilities. Yes, there is work to be done. I need to do that. But I want to rest in the deeper reality that the light of the risen glory of Jesus is shining on me right when I wake up in the morning, before I've done anything. That this is the more fundamental reality of my life. That God is always present and at work. I can join him, but that's a privilege. It's not a weight that I have to carry. God cares more about the things that I care about than I do. One really practical way I'm saying yes to this invitation that I sense from God is simply by making it a goal to get eight hours of sleep every night. I realize one of the reasons I resist sleep is because I'm trying to get stuff done. And I'm not getting anything done when I'm sleeping. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. So I'm trying to get eight hours of sleep uh, per night as a way of trusting God. God, you're, you've got this. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Your light is shining on me. And actually, there's something happening maybe even in the dark places while I sleep. Maybe the Lord is working. Amen? Dave, you, you told me. You gave me this word. Night work. So that's a practical way. I'm trying to practice contemplation in prayer. Um, it's the part of my prayer life that I resist 
the strongest. And I'm also uh, committing that when I fail or feel the shame of not making a difference, simply meeting God there instead of kicking myself, trying to do better, trusting that the light of God's glory is shining on me even there, and it's stronger than my shame that I didn't make a difference or I didn't do the right thing or I made a mistake or I sinned. So how about you? What are your Dursleys <laughs> this morning? What threatens to obscure the light of Christ shining on you? What seems to loom larger than God's glory in your life? What's the darkness that seems stronger than the light for you? Where do you need God to speak this good news to you today? Where do you need to be reminded that you're a wizard, Ari? This is a deeper truth about your life. Friends, in the incarnation, our light has come. In Christ, the glory of the Lord has risen upon us, chasing away the darkness of shame and despair, reconciling us to God and to each other, members of one body sharing together God's promise to restore all things. Church, arise and shine this epiphany, for the light is stronger than the darkness. Amen? We're going to pray together, and then we're going to come to the table. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.